following program is brought to you by your friends at Podcast One. Lowe's knows you'll do spring right by saving on what you need to get your garden growing. We do it right, too, with incredible deals during our spring Black Friday sale, like 19-ounce Bonnie vegetable and herb plants, four for $10. And pick up five bags of Scott's mulch in store only for just $10. Whatever's on your list, hurry in and save during our spring Black Friday sale. Do it right for less. Start with Lowe's. Offers valid through 417 while supplies last. Not valid in Alaska or Hawaii. Scott's offer valid in store only. See store for details, U.S. only. Hey, everybody, before we get going, could you please do the Forbes Under 30 podcast a huge favor by filling out a less than five-minute survey? Just go to podcastone.com slash mysurvey or go to podcastone.com and click on the survey banner. It's completely anonymous, and your responses will help us align appropriate advertisers with you, our listeners, so that we can be talking about things that are relevant to you. If you've if you filled out a survey in the past, we thank you, but we we still need you to do it again. Your efforts will help us stay free to download with minimal ads. Podcastone.com and click on the survey banner. Thank you for taking a few minutes uh, to fill out the survey. A technological stagnation has set in where we're still using the same solar panels today that work in the same way with the same material, silicon, as we did in the 1950s when we invented. Uh, one of the first solar cells. So I worry that we undergo a technological stagnation. Solar gets built out for the next couple decades, and then it hits a ceiling. It will be too late to then invest in the innovation needed to prevent that ceiling from constraining solar's growth. At that point, you can kiss a clean energy transition in a timely fashion. Goodbye. Welcome to the Forbes Under 30 Podcast. I'm Steve Goldblum, your host. On this show, we speak with young entrepreneurs and innovators. But first, a quick break to thank Rocket Mortgage and ZipRecruiter. Right now, you can try ZipRecruiter for free, which saves you a couple hundred bucks at ZipRecruiter.com slash Forbes. My guest today is Varun Sivaram. He is uh, he's a physicist. He has experience working both in uh, in policy and in business. He's currently the Philip Reed Fellow for Science and Technology uh, at the Council of Foreign Relations, and uh, he's the author of the book Taming the Sun, which came out in March, and the upcoming book Digital Decarbonization. And he's joining me on Skype. So, uh, Varun, thank you for being here. Steve, thanks so much for having me. You let's just get into your background before we launch into any kind of a forecast or the work that you're doing right now. Uh, there's so much to say about your experience. You've done so. All of our guests here on Under Thirty have accomplished so much. You have especially accomplished a lot um, under the age of thirty. Start with where did you grow up? Thanks so much, Steve. I grew up in Silicon Valley. Um, about a stone's throw from uh, Stanford University, where I, I then was fortunate to go for undergraduate. And what was your family like? What was your upbringing like? You know, both of my parents are immigrants from India. Um, they immigrated uh, from the south of India. My dad is in the semiconductor industry. Um, he did his PhD in material science, and that really inspired me to be a scientist. And I wanted to be just like my dad and my, my goal was to publish a paper in the same journal that he published his first paper in, uh, the Journal of Applied Physics. Um, and uh, 
my, my mom uh, came and was a speech therapist, and she worked uh, in local schools in San Jose um, in underprivileged areas. And so, you know, gr- growing up uh, in an immigrant family, y- you get all the right values. Uh, you learn to work hard. Uh, I, I, in particular, uh, got the value of uh, innovation, technology, um, and, and learning to be a scientist. And so what did you excel at? How, how were you was, – was it the hard sciences that you excelled at, at quite young? You know, I, I, I loved science class. Um, the, the other thing I really loved doing uh, when I was growing up uh, was foreign relations and public speaking. So I was a debater um, and I, I competed in an event called Foreign Extemporaneous Speaking. Mm. And so, you know, growing up I had kind of these dual passions. I really loved science and technology and math, but I also loved foreign relations and uh, public speaking. And so, you know, my, my, my career kind of uh, fortunately culminated in what I do now, which is I got to marry the two of these passions. Uh, I work at the Council on Foreign Relations where uh, I get to study science and technology trends and then explain how they relate to foreign relations and make recommendations to U.S. policymakers and other governments around the world about what to do with these innovations. I have to say, uh, Varun, you might be the first person I've ever met who as a kid was interested in extemporaneous foreign speaking. <laughs> that, what, what does that look like exactly? How extemporaneously were you speaking about foreign issues? At, 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 at what, was it just coming to you? I mean, it, 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 it's really absurd, right? You, you go to these speech and debate, debate events, they're in like some high school gymnasium, and you've got a bunch of like 16-year-olds mm-hmm. dressed up in suits, like ill-fitting baggy suits. We didn't know any better. And we're there, I'm there in my olive green suit, and I've got this big tub of evidence because all you do in the interim between the competitions is you compile evidence. They give you a topic on the fly, and then uh, you have a very limited amount of time to look into your tub, memorize like seven different pieces of evidence, and then get up and give a seven-minute speech. This is not you know, varsity sports. Let me tell you, I, I, I missed the varsity basketball team and every other sports team I tried out for. But this was my way of, of, of getting my shot of adrenaline um, competing in speech and debate tournaments. Well, I want to get into some of your books. I want to first start with Taming the Sun. And in that book, you provide a, a roadmap uh, for the future, and you kind of spell out that solar is – you predict solar is sputtering out. You say solar power is, is sputtering out, um, and you provide projections for 2050. So what – can you just give me – what was the thesis of that book? Yeah, just to be clear, I don't think solar power is sputtering out. I think solar power is in danger of sputtering out right. in the future. Right, right. I actually think, you know, indisputably, solar is now the fastest growing energy source on the planet. You know, it attracted over $160 billion in investment last year, more than any other energy source, clean or dirty. And in many places, many parts of the world, solar is now the cheapest form of energy. And so a lot of folks look at this and say, oh my gosh, the battle is over. Solar is going to inexorably continue to rise. And all we got to do is, you know, generally support its growth, sit back and watch. I think that's the wrong attitude. And I foresee solar hitting this wall. At least I foresee a a substantial risk of it hitting that wall in a decade or two. And the reason it could hit that wall is that solar is actually a very inconvenient source of energy in contrast to the much more convenient fossil fuels that we have at our disposal today. And so if we want a clean energy transition – we're going to have to prepare for a world where we're getting a ton of our energy from the super inconvenient sun 
that you know it hides behind the clouds sometimes uh it is intermittent uh it it rises and it sets the sun is not a constant or concentrated or portable source of energy because of that we need to find a lot of workarounds so specifically what i fear is the more solar power we have on a grid the more it eats its own lunch, so to speak. See, in the middle of the day, if you have a lot of solar power, solar is going to flood the grid with electrons, electricity. And then later on in the evening when the sun sets, Mm -hmm. all of that solar electricity gets wiped out and you suddenly require other generators to quickly ramp up and meet those needs. That means that the next solar panel is no longer very valuable. It's eaten its own lunch because when you have a lot of solar, the marginal addition doesn't get you much. It gets you some more lunchtime power when what you really wanted was dinnertime power. If we get to that position, you know, we get to a point where solar is supplying greater than 10 or 15 percent of our electricity, not just in frontier jurisdictions like California but all over the world. Mm-hmm. Well, solar could very well run out of steam even though it's, it's quite cheap. The problem is it's producing electricity at the wrong times. I argued that it'll take innovation. We should be investing in innovation right now to prepare for that world where we have a a lot of solar power so that by mid-century, solar can produce a third of the world's power and keep growing. That's going to be essential, I argue, for a clean energy transition. And the kinds of innovation I think are important are twofold. I think we're going to need technologies making solar far cheaper than it is today, not just counting on its gently declining cost. And I also think we're going to need flexible energy systems. That's like power grids Mm -hmm. that are able to accommodate influxes of solar energy at the wrong times of the day. Storage, like batteries and other technologies that make it possible to shift solar energy. Larger and smarter grids and a whole supporting cast of other power plants that are super flexible to make up for how inconvenient solar energy is. And we're taking a quick break now, but we'll be right back. Is your company hiring? Every business needs great people and a better way to find them, something better than posting your job online and just crossing your fingers that the right people will see it. ZipRecruiter learns what you're looking for, identifies people with the right experience, and invites them to apply to your job. In fact, 80% of employers who post a job on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate through the site in just one day. The right candidates are out there. ZipRecruiter is how you find them. Businesses of all sizes trust ZipRecruiter for their hiring needs. Right now, my listeners can try ZipRecruiter for free. That's right, for for free. They can just go on to ZipRecruiter.com slash Forbes and save yourself a couple hundred bucks. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash Forbes, ZipRecruiter.com slash Forbes, ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. We're going to get to your three tiers of innovation that you talk about in the book, but you use California as an interesting example. You say that uh, you know while the the cost is falling and it's becoming more accessible, uh, people almost become, I think, complacent. But you you use California as an example. What do you what do you mean by that? Yeah, so California is a great jurisdiction to look at because California is kind of leapt ahead of the rest of the world in terms of how much solar it is. It's an it's an early adopter. Uh, California now produces a little over 15% of its electricity on an annual basis from solar power. That's remarkable, right? The problem is we're starting to see these things that I'm scared of, solar eating its own lunch mm-hmm. in California because it's so far out ahead. 
we'll see it around the world over the next couple decades. In California, so far, solar has continued to grow largely because of mandates. You know, uh, the California government has been uh, proactive in mandating a certain amount of renewable energy. But this year, in 2018, the utilities in California have gotten pretty close to meeting their 2020 mandate. And so for the next couple of years, they're actually not required to largely increase the amount of solar in their portfolio. As a result, you're seeing their decisions on what resources to invest in being driven more by economics. And the underlying economics are not favorable for solar right now. Because there's so much solar, solar drives down the value of power in the middle of the day. And so the next solar panel isn't going to be able to raise much revenue and pay back the developer that goes and builds it. And the utility is not going to be willing to pay very much for that solar power. So that means that solar isn't going to get built at the rates that it has historically right. over the next couple of years because the economics are driving it. It undermines you know, its to, economics. Uh-huh. Yeah, exactly. It's, it's uneconomic. And that should be a warning sign to the rest of the world to say, hey, if you're like California, you build out a lot of solar, you could very quickly get to the stage where solar doesn't make economic sense. Now, California will continue to build solar. But it'll be because of mandates. For example, we just saw a mandate for putting solar on every single roof. This happened after the book came out. I mm. wish it had happened before because <laughs> I would have written about it. I, I think that is uh, you know, not the brightest idea. Um, mandates and subsidies for solar are historically the way that we have catalyzed the market, and that's worked great. But I think we're in a new regime for solar power. Instead of these mandates – I think we need to support the sorts of innovation I talk about in the book. So policies that indirectly support solar by instead, for example, supporting flexible systems, that's what's going to ensure the long-term success of solar, not direct subsidies and mandates for solar. So, And you also make the comparison that solar right now is where nuclear was in the 70s. You know, it very well may be the case. That is a scary comparison because nuclear back in the 1970s You know, 1971, nuclear was where solar is today. Nuclear accounted for 2% of the world's electricity generation. So does solar right now. And then nuclear was this great hope for clean, cheap, and abundant energy, and it enjoyed a two-decade-long building boom. And then, in 1996, nuclear peaked as a percentage of global electricity, somewhere around 16 or 18%, and it's declined ever since. And the reason it's declined, in my opinion, is because nuclear underwent this technological stagnation. We didn't really change the technology we used for nuclear reactors. We still use the same working principle as we did back in the 1950s. The same thing is happening in solar. A technological stagnation has set in where we're still using the same solar panels today that work in the same way with the same material, silicon, as we did in the 1950s when we invented uh, one of the first solar cells. So I worry that We undergo a technological stagnation. Solar gets built out for the next couple decades, and then it hits a ceiling. It will be too late to then invest in the innovation needed to prevent that ceiling from constraining solar's growth. At that point, you can kiss a clean energy transition in a timely fashion goodbye, and that's catastrophic when it comes to averting climate change. Well, let's talk about some of your uh, the innovation remedies that you bring up in, in the book because you say that you know financial institutions need to bundle – are currently bundling in fossil fuel, auto, and mortgage industries, but they need to invest in solar, right? That's, that's right. Look, the, the first area of innovation, financial innovation, is an area where I'm particularly bullish. I think that the solar industry is going to do just fine. 
in finding the large pools, trillions of dollars of capital that it's going to need to keep growing solar's share of global electricity. Now, it will need to innovate. Um, for example, as you mentioned, it's going to need to learn from the fossil fuel industry or the auto industry and mortgage industry and bundle together solar assets to make it easier for the largest deep-pocketed investors to you know, provide this capital. But I, but I think it'll get there. And so I, I don't expect that solar will get stopped by this funding speed bump. Today's investors don't actually have enough capital to continue to fund solar's breakneck expansion. It's the other kinds of innovation, technological and systemic or energy system level innovation. That's where I'm most worried that solar is currently not getting the kinds of investments proactively from policymakers and from private industry uh, that it needs. So let's talk about some of those technological innovations. What are some of the next gen technologies that already exist that you say can can transform today's panels into uh, into uh, into more useful ones? You know, I got to work on one of these next generation technologies. Um, it's called perovskite solar power. Perovskite is a material that enables you to convert sunlight into electricity very efficiently. You know, it, it currently rivals the efficiency of existing generation silicon solar cells, and it can do even better. But more excitingly, perovskite also comprises dirt-cheap, earth-abundant elements. It can be processed using extremely cheap equipment, and you can make it flexible, lightweight, transparent. Um, it, it basically is this magical material that you can make these coatings out of that are far more versatile than what current silicon solar panels are able to achieve. You know, these ugly, heavy, rigid, bulky panels. Right. And so in the future, solar could literally become ubiquitous. Um, you could have solar coatings on skyscrapers. You could have solar coatings on weak roofs in the developing world. And in that future, I believe that the cost of solar can fall so rapidly that it even though it's eating its own lunch, its cost is falling faster than its value is falling. And so it's still economical to install solar, even though you've got a whole lot of it connecting to electricity grids around the world. So that's, that's one technological option I'm excited about. You know, outside of converting sunlight directly into electricity, mm -hmm. I'm also excited about technologies that convert sunlight into heat. This is known as concentrated solar power, where you use concentrating mirrors to concentrate the sun's rays and heat up some fluid. I'm excited about that technology that's kind of you know, fallen into a lull, but if we invest in innovation, we can, make it, we can improve it. And that technology comes with built-in energy storage. You can store the energy from the sun right. in the form of uh, heat in molten salts, for example, and then generate electricity 24-7. The final kind of solar technology that I'm excited about, but that's a little further down the horizon, is artificial leaf technology. This is where you take the sun's energy and produce portable fuels. For example, you can harness sunlight to split water and produce hydrogen. And that hydrogen can then be used to fuel vehicles. It can also be used uh, as an industrial fuel. That's a way that solar can finally start to compete with oil. You know, oil has mm -hmm. this vice grip on many parts of the global economy, and currently solar energy can't compete with it because you don't really use oil to produce power in most parts of the world. Solar can compete with coal and natural gas, but if we can convert it into portable fuels like hydrogen, then solar energy could actually compete with oil. 
And that's an important way of displacing one of the most prominent fossil fuels in the world. And then in terms of systemic in- innovation, what what can you do to, to smooth out, as you talk about, the, the volatile swings of solar power? Exactly. You know, you need an energy system that's very well equipped and flexible to use solar energy productively no matter when it's produced. There are four general strategies to do this. The first is to make your electricity grid much bigger. A larger electricity grid makes it easier to match up areas of instantaneous supply excess uh, with the areas of instantaneous supply scarcity or excess demand. Another way you can skin this cat is you can have customer demand that's much more flexible. See, if your customers are using electricity at the times when solar is generating it, well, that's a great way of sopping up excess demand. And if customers are able to modulate their energy use based on when supply is available, then you have less of a problem from the intermittency of solar. Right. You can accomplish this, for example, if customers can intelligently turn on their water heaters or you know, their space heaters based on signals from the grid, pricing signals, for example. Customers may also be able to charge their electric vehicles at the right times or even discharge their electric vehicles using them as mobile batteries. Now, that brings me to the third bucket, which is energy storage. If you have a fleet of, for example, batteries or pumped hydroelectricity plants that are able to store energy and discharge it at parts of the, of the day when you, you need the energy but solar isn't producing, well, then you've effectively shifted solar from an inconvenient time to a convenient time. And the final, uh, the fourth bucket of, of ways yeah. to make your system flexible is to surround solar with a bunch of other flexible power plants. You know, natural gas is a flexible uh, fuel that enables your power plant to ramp up and down. You can also uh, operate a nuclear power plant in this fashion. A nuclear power plant, even though it normally doesn't operate flexibly, can be ramped up and down. So those are the four ways that your system can become more flexible. You know, some of these involve new technologies, but many of them involve repackaging existing technologies and just doing so at an innovative system level. And we're taking a quick break now, but we'll be right back. Support for the Forbes Under 30 podcast comes from our friends at Rocket Mortgage by Quicken Loans, the mortgage company that decided to ask why. Why can't clients get approved in minutes rather than weeks? Why can't they make adjustments to their rate and term in real time? And why can't there be a client-focused technological mortgage revolution? Quicken Loans answered all these questions and more with Rocket Mortgage. Rocket Mortgage gives you the confidence you need when it comes to buying a home or refinancing your existing home loan. Rocket Mortgage is simple, allowing you to fully understand all the details and be confident you're getting the right mortgage for you. Whether you're looking to buy your first home or your 10th with Rocket Mortgage, you get a transparent online process that gives you the confidence to make an informed decision. Rocket Mortgage by Quicken Loans. Apply simply, understand fully, mortgage confidently. To get started, go to rocketmortgage.com Forbes. Equal housing lender, licensed in all 50 states, nmlsconsumeraccess.org, number 3030. Lowe's knows you'll do spring right by saving on everything you need to get your garden growing. We do it right, too, with incredible deals to help you save during our spring Black Friday sale, like Bonnie Vegetable and Herb Plants, four for $10. And for a clean-looking landscape, pick up five bags of Scott's Mulch for just $10. Whatever's on your spring to-do list, hurry in and save during our spring Black Friday sale. Do it right for less. Start with Lowe's. Offers valid through 417, not valid on Alaska or Hawaii. Bonnie offer valid on 19-ounce pots. See store for details, U.S. only. 
these systems would help preserve solar powers and promoting all three, as you say, will require significant investment from from governments around the world. What specifically stands in the way of this innovation? You know, in in many cases, it's political will because, for example, let's talk about technology innovation. Technology innovation requires some amount of funding from the government because uh, the private sector often is not willing to entirely fund energy innovation in some of these areas where you know you have entrenched energy incumbents and entrenched market structures. Folks are afraid to fund new technologies, so you need a, a little bit of a push from governments. Mm-hmm. But the the sums we're talking about are small. They're measured in the billions or tens of billions of dollars. They're rounding errors on the U.S. federal budget. You know, President Obama committed the United States to double its federal budget for energy innovation from six to twelve billion dollars. The United States is, you know, making slower progress toward that goal, but fortunately, Congress has increased uh, funding in the latest fiscal year rather than mm-hmm. decreasing it at President Trump's request. So, I think political will is what stands in the way, not really economic realities. It, it, it brings economic prosperity to invest in innovation. You generally tend to reap more returns than what you invest uh, in research, development, and demonstration of these new technologies. And it's better for us to do it than China, which is rapidly ramping up their investment uh, in innovation. So frankly, if I, if I had to name a, a, an obstacle, it's lack of awareness yeah. in energy innovation and a lack of political will. But fortunately, I think we're making strides in the right direction notwithstanding some elements that would prefer us to curtail our budgets. Well, it sounds like you're warning. I mean, people take for granted that this novelty of what solar was and how it was once this um, – it was a novelty. Has Now it's, it's increasingly becoming cheaper and more accessible. But you warn us that we could squander its its potential if we don't adequately plan for the future. Have you Have you seen other examples of this take place around the world? That's right. I mean, look, nuclear is exactly that cautionary tale. I don't want us to squander the potential uh, uh, of solar power, just like we've largely squandered the potential of our most abundant uh, clean energy source in the United States, nuclear power. Nuclear is on the decline, and that is tragic. I also see this happening when it comes to energy storage. Look, I worry that lithium-ion batteries, as great as they are, as much use as Elon Musk has put them to in powering Teslas and your, you know, that battery pack in your garage, yeah. lithium-ion batteries are starting to dominate energy storage. That's dangerous. If we lock in to this particular technology and we you know, fail to invest substantially in the emerging contenders that are going to make it possible to store renewable energy for seasons – or make it possible to make an electric vehicle drive for 500 miles and beat the range of an internal combustion engine vehicle. If we don't invest in those emerging advanced energy storage technologies, we'll shoot ourselves in the foot. Look, we absolutely need to be a society that continually invests in the next technology generation and improves upon the last one. If we are instead a society, at least in this sector, energy, that locks into a technology for decades and makes it impossible for emerging contenders to break in, well, that's a recipe for disaster, especially when you're dealing with a problem as intractable as climate change, where unless we have remarkable, radical technology solutions to pair with political will um, and economic support, we're not going to solve climate change. We're not going to radically decarbonize uh, the global energy system. Well, Frankly, some of my pessimism around uh, 
you know, the, these uh, new technology solutions, the fact that you know, venture capitalists have largely exited funding new solar and storage technologies, that's what made me shift focus most recently to an area that I think is the one bright spot when it comes to energy innovation, and that's digital technologies. In the digital realm, we are seeing movement. VCs are funding digital technologies. Uh, the, the, you know, the global energy system is witnessing a digital transformation at a scale and speed that's unprecedented for global energy systems that traditionally are super sluggish and don't like to change. Digital technology may offer us you know, this one ray of hope uh, when it comes to rapidly slashing our greenhouse gas emissions and fighting climate change. Well, Varun, you've you've come a long way since your days of extemporaneously speaking about uh, foreign issues in high school. What what has the experience been like for you to work with politicians on educating the public and uh, you know working your uh, working your knowledge into speeches and on a larger platform and making it more accessible? What have what has worked? What hasn't worked? I am uh, most grateful for the opportunity to work with politicians and public leaders uh, who are pragmatic, um, who are willing to listen to advisors, who are willing to take data uh, and make the right policy decision irrespective of politics. Let me just ask you, because of your interest in public speaking and policy, um, any political interest for you personally? Could you see yourself running as as a candidate one day? You know, I, I would probably say way too many things that get me in trouble. Um, most recently on the on the book tour, I, I think I've made myself particularly unpopular by by giving advice that I think is is not universally accepted by the solar industry or by advocates of renewable energy, but I think is right. I think this advice treads a middle path between Democrats and Republicans. It's it's moderate. It's responsible fiscally, but it's also responsible environmentally. I think we got to straddle those issues. I would make a terrible politician because uh, I, I tend to sit uh, right in the middle um, and come up with, with what I think are pragmatic ideas, but which often can be just infuriating to the left and the right. So uh, don't count on, uh, on any political aspirations from me, but, but thanks, uh, thanks for asking. All right. Taming the Sun is his first book. He's also uh, an editor, uh, one of many contributors to his next book, which is called Digital Decarbonization, which comes out on June 20th. And uh, Varun, thank you so much. We'll be keeping up with your work. Hey, Steve, thanks so much for having me. That's it for this episode of Forbes Under 30. I hope you enjoyed it. If you want to reach out to us with a comment or question, please do so at under30, that's the number 30, at podcast1.com. And everybody, please subscribe to the show on iTunes or Podcast One. And uh, you know what? We would love it if you would just leave us a rating and a review. It would really help. Hi, I'm Spencer Raskoff, the CEO of Zillow Group, and I have a new podcast here on Podcast One called Office Hours. Listen as I have one-on-one conversations with other CEOs. We have the kind of conversations that can only happen between peers, tackling tough questions, sharing hard-won insights, and helping to define what leadership means today. Join me twice a month on Office Hours, exclusively on Apple Podcasts, PodcastOne.com, and the new Podcast One app. Lowe's knows you'll do spring right by saving on what you need to get your garden growing. 
We do it right, too, with incredible deals during our spring Black Friday sale, like 19-ounce Bonnie vegetable and herb plants, four for $10. And pick up five bags of Scott's Mulch in store only for just $10. Whatever's on your list, hurry in and save during our spring Black Friday sale. Do it right for less. Start with Lowe's. Offers valid through 417 while supplies last. Not valid in Alaska or Hawaii. Scott's offer valid in store only. See store for details, U.S. only. At the border, I'm Ed Donahue with an AP News Minute. At the roundtable discussion today in San Antonio, Texas, President Trump heard something he said he'd never heard before about life along the border. Many people are dying, and the danger of living here, unless you know exactly what you're doing, is tremendous. This is Texas Lieutenant Governor Dan Patrick. Where are the people in Washington to stand up for these children, these women, these senior citizens? Where are they? Bring them down. Mr. President, let the Democrats come down to Brooks County. Let them come to any of these ranches. Let them see these bodies. Let them see the skeletons. We have the photographs. Attorney General William Barr says he thinks spying did occur on Donald Trump's presidential campaign, suggesting the origins of the Russia investigation may have been mishandled. Scientists released the first image ever made of a black hole, revealing a fiery ring of gravity-twisted light swirling around the edge of the abyss. One scientist said science fiction has become science fact. I'm Ed Donahue.